Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 203 of the Spoiler Alert podcast brought to you by MovieOutsiders.com. This is Mike, I'm here with Danny, and tonight we're going to be discussing the new Steven Spielberg-directed film, Ready Player One. Danny, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right. When you said the Steven Spielberg-directed film, it it almost sounded like you were going to say direct-to-video, and I was was prepared to... (laughs) To challenge you on that, but no, no, this is... No, no, this one made it to the theaters. Who knows if it should have? We'll get into it. We'll get into it. Finally gave him a shot and put his movie on the big screen. (laughs) He's going to make something of himself. Right, right. Last Spielberg movie we discussed was the Best Picture nominee, The Post. Didn't end up... up Really going anywhere? What a great one! Yeah, but and, and so no, I hated. That and one. so then it's interesting to to follow it up with with this you know kind of big budget sort of blockbuster themed video game movie. And this guy's kind of all over the map, right? I mean, we've he's won Best Director for for Schindler's List and for uh, Saving Private Ryan, you know. But the movies he's potentially best known for are blockbusters like E.T. and Jaws and and Jurassic Park. Do you have a favorite Spielberg movie? I know you always watch Jaws every every July yeah, 4th. But it, I mean, I feel like it's a little, little obvious to say that one, but I do have such a soft spot for it. Yeah. Every 4th of July weekend, I have to find time, make time to watch Jaws. But, you know, what's interesting to me is that this is Spielberg's first decent hit since Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Which was a dog movie. Which is a bad movie, yeah. but it made $100 million in its opening weekend. Right. And he hasn't had a movie, I think he hasn't had a movie make more than $300 million globally since that one, which is almost a decade ago. Interesting. So he has sort of needed a hit, which is an odd thing to say about Steven Spielberg. Because he has made hit after hit after hit sure. after hit. Yeah, right. But he's just been doing these smaller pictures the last few years. Uh, and then he did the BFG, which was his his first and only Disney film, which really went nowhere. Yeah, I actually forgot that that one existed. So there's references in this film to the Iron Giant. I'm guessing that was his movie, though. I, for, I never saw and no, forgot about no, that. No, that was written and directed by Brad Bird. Oh, it was. Okay, so that wasn't yeah. the Spielberg movie. What was the no. Spielberg animated film maybe 6 7 years ago? It was Tin The Adventures of Tintin. Tintin, that's what it was. Okay, yeah. And that was part of a planned I think they were going to try and do a trilogy, but he directed and produced this one along with Peter Jackson and the plan was that Peter Jackson would direct the second one and they would get another director to do the third. And so there was they were there was a plan to do several of these movies, and in his press work for Ready Player One, Steven Spielberg did say that there still is a plan to continue the Tintin series. Oh, okay, okay. But but the next movie, one of the next movies he will be making is Indiana Jones 5? Yeah, I guess that five. would be 5, yeah. That'd be 5, and uh, that's going to start shooting not until, I think, 2019. Oh, wow. So Harrison Ford... Will be like seventy six years old, right? Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe pushing it a little bit. So yeah, he's, he's made tons of different types of films. Like that was the thing that kept coming back to me as I sat and watched this. Like I can't believe that this is the director that made The Color Purple, right? Like this is just really, right. 
such a departure. He's probably best known for Warhorse. I, I forgot about that one too. We should do a movie marathon and watch like Amistad and Warhorse <laughs> and Always. Didn't he do in a 1941? He did like a Peter Pan. He did a Peter Pan themed one too. Right? Was well, it was he Hook? did Hook. It was Hook. Yeah, well, that, that was a moderate success. I just think we should do all his sort of like his B movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we might as well do that one weekend. Well, let's let's get into Ready Player One. I'll give a very tight plot recap here. In a dystopian, not too distant future, the world spends its time in virtual reality games in a land called the Oasis, where they are represented by self-chosen avatars. When James Halliday, the creator of the Oasis, passes away, he leaves a message behind to the gamers with a challenge to find Easter eggs within his world for a significant prize. The main challenger for this prize is Wade Watts, who is a young adult living in Columbus, Ohio, uh, and along with his virtual reality girlfriend, Artemis. Uh, but their progress is hindered by the evil corporation, Innovative Online Industries, whose leader, Nolan Sorrento, has his own nefarious motives for claiming the Easter egg. After several trips down memory lane in the video game archives, and a scene lifted straight from Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining, the Easter egg is eventually discovered. And that's Ready Player One. Danny, what did you think? Uh, well, let me say up front that I've read the book. You, I was, I was going to ask you about that as well. Yeah, it's about, it's like 10 years old, right? Yeah. Okay. And I really enjoyed the book. A lot of people will crap on it because they say it's really nothing but a lot of nostalgia for the 80s. And it's sort of scene after scene after scene after scene after scene of, of 80s nostalgia, which it is. It's unabashedly that. But I do think it's a fun read. And I grew up in the 80s, so I have a soft spot for almost everything that was on the page. And the movie, I thought, was okay. All right. I, and in fact, I, but they changed a lot. Now, now Ernest Klein, who wrote the novel, does share a screenwriting credit for the film. So he helped adapt his own novel. Okay. But I felt they made so many changes from the book that there at times I felt like this should be more like inspired by the novel, not an adaptation of. Oh, interesting. Because they just changed things wholesale. And I don't... I couldn't really figure out why they did that. There were a few references in the book to Spielberg films that he, as a director, felt it would be a little too on the nose for him to sort of reference himself. So he took out a lot of those. But those weren't the major changes that they made. Like the so color just, purple? Like they were, there were a lot of references right. to the color purple? Lots of time right. in Always right. <laughs> with Richard Dreyfus. Right. Lots of time. It's pretty much just Always. That's pretty much the book. What did you think? I, I think that I share your sentiment that it was okay. You know, I think I think you described the last film we reviewed as you know, not the last. It was mute as a a big wet stinky fart of a film, and and <laughs> yes. I, I I definitely don't think that this was that. But it was messy and eye rolling inducing at several points. I I think that it was an okay film with some. With a neat concept. Until I researched the podcast, I didn't even know that it was based on a book, which you know oh. now, now, now I do, and obviously then had not read the source material. But yeah, I, th I think that I share your feeling. It was it was all right. 
And that's disappointing because, again, I, the source material is fun. Spielberg has, you know, he spent a lot of time in the last decade doing adult dramas like The Post or Bridge of Spies, kind of smaller films. But he has such prowess and skills at big set pieces, thrilling moments, memorable moments. And I felt like this movie just doesn't have almost anything that's really memorable unto itself. It it spends so much time name-checking other things, but not even in a way where I got wrapped up in nostalgia for them. It just is like, okay, they're in a motorcycle race or a, a road race, and there's the motorcycle from Akira, and he's driving the car from Back to the Future, and there's the, you know, the T-Rex from Jurassic Park, and here's King Kong. And there's just so many references piled up that, you you don't get an opportunity to really enjoy any of them very much. And the sequence itself is sort of bland. I, I share your sentiments exactly. I think I, I also found a lot of this really confusing. So you said that they changed a lot. Well, I guess l- let me take a step back. I feel like the plot itself was actually really easy to understand. And so I went into this thinking, oh boy. I mean, you know, this isn't going to be one that I would have picked out on my own. Were we not reviewing it for the podcast? Probably not one that I would have gone and seen. And I'm not a gamer. I'm not into sci-fi. So to me, I'm already going in thinking, you've got to pay super close attention here. You're not going to understand anything what's going on. The plot itself seemed relatively easy to digest, I found. Like, it wasn't a confusing story. I think that I could have brought both my kids and they would have got the gist of what was going on through it. So I guess kudos for the writing adaptation. I at least understood all that. But can you explain to me why in this world, this oasis, which is a a global virtual online community, all of the people who are hunting for this Easter egg live in Columbus, Ohio? Like, how did that happen? Like, what? why in the world are all the people who are actually vying for the top prize from the same zip code. That's really weird. It would be like it would be like if all the finalists at the Masters, you know, were from from the same Southern California town. Like that that doesn't happen. That that was really weird to me. And in the book, that's not how it happens. Uh, Interesting. So Percival, who's played by Wade Watts, his he lives in uh, Columbus, but Artemis, the female, the girl Artie. Uh, she lives, I think, in the Pacific Northwest. Like, eventually, some of those characters do meet in real in the real world in the book, but it's an effort, and it's a road trip, and they have to come together as opposed to, oh, I live three blocks away from you, or and, uh, go to the other side of Columbus, and that's where the you know the Japanese guys live in Japan. They don't live in Columbus, in Columbus Ohio. right? Yeah. So there were a lot. Of, so again, so that was weird, that, right? Like yeah. that, that was just an odd. It, it made it very hard to believe that all of the top competitors for this prize live within right. the same city. And and there were other things that just they sort of piled on, like the car chase at the end and Sorrento firing a gun at them. And it, it was so tacked on and so unnecessary because the book itself should be exciting. Or the you know, the movie itself should be exciting, built off these big set pieces in the book. And it, it felt like they cut out a lot of those and then they they realized the movie wasn't exciting enough, so they sort of shoehorned in some of these other pieces. And okay. so I just was it just felt a little disappointing. I will say, however, um 
in the so in the book, for example, in the book, the first key, you know, again, the whole thing is people have spent years and years looking for the key. You can't find the key. A lot of people have given up. It's been five or six years since the, the hunt started. Wade Watts hasn't given up and he figures out that the key is actually on this. Uh, I think the planet with all the schools because all it, the whole world is so much richer in the book as of course it always is. But he, he goes through a Dungeons and Dragons world. Okay. And I guess people felt like, well, no one plays Dungeons and Dragons enough to really know much about that. So we'll cut it out. And so that was where the car race came in. That whole car race is not in the book. And ultimately, you know, Steven Spielberg can shoot a pretty exciting car chase. And there were moments that I thought were pretty thrilling, but like all the movie pieces and all the nostalgia just were distractions to me. Okay. Yeah. But, but the one thing that I thought was the, the best thing about the entire movie was the sequence of the shining, which was not in the book. And I thought was totally awesome because to me, if the Oasis existed and you could do that, you could just go visit the shining. You could go yeah, to the overlook yeah, yeah. hotel and walk through and interact with the characters how freaking awesome would that be? I feel like I'd want to go to the Grand Budapest Hotel. Right. And I'd want right, to go right. I'd want to walk on the Death Star. And like you could just the go to those places. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, absolutely. That to me seemed like a significantly awesome use of the technology. I thought it was done very well. I thought the sequence was great. It sort of opened my eyes to how fun and cool the Oasis could be and therefore how cool this movie could have been. If they would have done more like that. Yeah, I, I also my favorite part. I mean, as soon as I realized that they were going to go into The Shining, and I didn't know quite how on the nose it was going to yeah. be, the music starts playing, the intro theme music, my the hair on my arm stands up. I mean, that's a scary movie, and it was scary in this movie. Yeah. And I thought that it was super cool, the, the attention to detail that they paid. I mean, there's got to be scenes just straight, like, like pictures straight lifted from Kubrick in there. I can't imagine that they recreated it. But then when they have the woman getting out of the bathtub in room 237, they they take that to 11. Like they made it scarier than it is in, in The Shining. And it was awesome. It was fantastic. Well, what I also loved about it is when they're in the Oasis, in the other scenes in this movie, the Oasis seems more like a video game. You know, like it... They did that, obviously, from a visual standpoint to separate it from the real world. But everything had this real fakey, almost cheesy video game look to it. And then when they went into The Shining, everything looked flawless. Right, and right, right, right. Kubrickian, right? Yes. Like it was like, oh, like we're here. And it just it's it was such an that scene was an oasis from the cruddiness of the oasis yeah yeah that's so a good thought. i really enjoyed it i thought that was awesome but then i guess to counter that point they have a big discussion earlier in the film about or maybe it's later now i can't remember if it's before or after that about john hughes movies that i just thought like there there's a whole john hughes movie sequence where he's trying to trick the kid or the kid's trying to trick the guy into revealing something that he doesn't know about 80s movies that I was really confused by. And I guess that's I guess that's the biggest problem that I had with the film is that it's, I think, supposed to be in 2045 or in in that decade. Yeah. Why are they so nostalgic for the 1980s? Like, I would think that a 20-year-old in 2045 would be nostalgic for 
something go- maybe right now or something that's about like for for uh taylor swift or beyonce or something yep. it's it's all because of james halliday so because he was obsessed with the 80s and he's hidden the easter eggs that's why everyone else is trying to i mean there's half a trillion dollars oh, okay uh, up for grabs as well as control of the oasis so but he grew up in the 80s through. he grew up in the 80s so okay. he loved old crappy video games and dungeons and dragons and Steven Spielberg and movies, Steven, and, yeah, yeah. So John he, Hughes he was movies. all about. It. All yes, right. okay. Yes, I, so I get where it. It, came it just it just seemed like, like this is clearly a nostalgia trip, right? I mean, there's references to Duran Duran, and the whole soundtrack of the film is your favorite '80s mixtape, right? Yeah. I just couldn't get why any of the characters in the movie cared about the 1980s, and and I, I guess that makes sense with what you said, but. It just doesn't seem like any of them would have given half a about Van Halen. Well, also, I felt like time was compressed in the movie. In the book, this whole adventure, it takes months, maybe a year, you know, from the time that Wade finally figures out the first key, you know, months go by and all, you know, all sorts of time goes by. And it felt like in the movie, it happened in a couple of days and it felt like it was kind of painfully obvious. They just went to the museum and asked the, you know, watch two little videos and we're like, oh, that's it. You know, so it just it loses the 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 momentum or the magnitude of the quest in the book, because in the movie, it seems kind of easy. I don't know. And and I guess I would think that even today, if if this contest were to go out tomorrow, if 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 Steve Jobs had left behind some sort of challenge like this, wouldn't there just be message boards just rampant with clues and if it's like i can't imagine that it would take more than 22 minutes for the world to find the easter egg that he left behind even if it meant referencing an atari 2600 video game like i I just feel like there's there's too much access to information and easy communication nowadays that there's no way that this challenge could have even taken as long as it did in the film which you're saying is compressed from the way it was described in the book. Yeah. Uh, so there's lots of changes made. I don't know that any of them added anything. I felt most of them detracted with the exception of the shining scene. That was pretty awesome. That but was, what's yeah. up with what's up with Mark Rylance playing Halliday like a stroke victim? <laughs> I mean, I get that he's trying to play him sort of as like a savant or maybe he's maybe he's on the spectrum, but he straight up is like not well. <laughs> you like every Every line he utters is sort of a whimper, and yeah. like it's it was it was I it took me a good thirty seconds before I realized it was Mark Rylance playing the character. It's like, oh my god, is that really Oscar winner Mark Rylance? It, Don't get was, me started on his Academy Award. <laughs> let's just move past that. What what's up with them trying to make who's the actress who plays uh, Olivia? What's her name? Artemis Olivia Cook. Olivia Cook. What's up with them trying to make her unattractive by giving her a birthmark? Like, that was just the most... Like, no way. Gorgeous actress, and now she's got this birthmark on her face, and that's the, the, the little character quirk about her, that she's supposed to be unattractive, and then in the real world, he won't be nearly as attracted to her once she realizes that she's not as good looking as her avatar. Like, that was dumb. That was just so dumb. Yes, agreed. What's what's up with Sorrento who gets his ties monogrammed? 
Like I've seen monogram like cuffs, you know, or maybe they put a little monogram like on your like the pocket of your dress shirt, but your tie? Yeah, yeah, that's that's weird Douche. too. And I also feel like it was sort of as you would describe it in our podcast, a cheat that the the way that they they kind of tricked Sorrento was to like fake virtual reality him like he thought he was seeing something that he actually wasn't seeing because they were able to take advantage of some little glitch in the programming that to me was a oh boy you know that happened about two-thirds of the way through and that's that's ultimately i think when i gave up on the film like it it's the sort of trick that you would do in like a heist movie where you've you've hijacked the camera feed so that the security guard just keeps watching the same ninety second loop over and well, over again. You gotta do that. <laughs> that's, that's what a, happened. That's a go to move. <laughs> it's, right. Yeah, it just felt it felt lesser. It felt lesser than the book, and it certainly felt made by a lesser director than Steven Spielberg. And that was just frustrating to me. The end battle scene, you know, where you've got all these different vehicles and different characters. In the book, it reads so awesome. In the movie, it just felt A, too much, and B, not exciting. But isn't that Spielberg to a T? Obviously, it's so, so ridiculous for somebody doing a movie podcast to criticize Steven Spielberg as a director. But how many of his movies just end forever the ending just keeps going and going and going and i felt like the last 30 minutes of this movie were four hours long i i I was ready for it to be done well and and in the book you know there is there are things that take place after the climactic scene right like there is resolution beyond a battle but then for some reason in this movie they tacked on a car chase like it really felt like just let it wrap up um, the whole like contract sequence when he was about to oh, sign the contract, but yeah. then realized he wouldn't sign a contract. It and just... that, that was the ultimate win. You know, that's how he, yeah. he got in his good graces. Yeah. Let's come back to Olivia one more time. Can you really touch a girl's hair and face the minute that you actually meet her in person? Is that okay? I've never tried <laughs> it. And it, it seemed to work out really well for this guy. But the second that he meets her in person... He has touched her face and her hair. I've always been told that ain't cool. That's like a second meeting where you can just grope someone's face. Right, 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 right. right. Your old shtick of pretending to be blind where you can just walk (laughs) up and rub everyone's face doesn't work anymore. It it used to never fail, but now it it no longer works. The word is out. Yeah. But are you ready for five questions? Let's do it. All right, we've got five listener-submitted questions for Ready Player One. Thank you, listeners. Question number one. Are there any pop culture references you hope to see that weren't included? Um, no, there's nothing I went into saying oh, I really hope they reference this. Because, I, like I said, it, I didn't get a great charge out of seeing them. Right. You know, it's not like they walked into some uh, dance club and, you know, Deadpool was walking out. And that's fine. But like, I didn't, I wasn't like, oh, awesome. Deadpool just walked out. So, uh, but that's like half the movie was just, I felt like I was supposed to react that way. And I just thought, okay. Okay. Uh, Second question. How would this movie play differently if Spielberg replaced Percival's DeLorean with the General Lee? (laughs) Um. I don't know that it would change much, except it would feel 
racially charged um, in in a terrible way. Fine people um, on all sides. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on. I'm not touching that. Question number three. Simon Pegg has starred in multiple successful franchises, including Mission Impossible, Star Wars, Star Trek, the animated Ice Age series, and the Cornetto Trilogy. Do you look forward to his performances, or have you tired of the incessant pegging? <laughs> um, no, I have not tired of the pegging, but I actually, I actually thought he was very good in this movie because he was so reserved. It was the most normal yeah. I've ever seen him act. Yeah. Um, the sequences of him versus Mark Rylance, and again, Mark Rylance was playing Halliday as such an odd, almost unfunctioning human. <laughs> That maybe Peg just seemed so normal by comparison. Those, those Mark Ryland scenes were so weird. They're really uncomfortable almost. Yeah. Like yeah. Um So I thought Peg did a good job in this movie. I like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Good, good. Okay. Uh and uh TJ Miller, who voices IROC, was accused in late twenty seventeen of a two thousand one George Washington University sexual assault. Should he have been cut from this film? It was interesting that they opted to keep him because his character is totally CG. Yeah. And you right. could have very easily replaced him with another voice actor. Like, like Kevin Spacey. Or they just get <laughs> Kevin Spacey to be the voice actor. <laughs> Harvey Weinstein does the voice. <laughs> um, Roman Polanski. Right. So director. I thought it was really odd. I mean, I, I don't want to say it's bold or brave or something because the, the jokes and the cadence are so TJ Miller. You yeah, know, his character says things that's like it's it's just his humor. So you could get someone else to redub the dialogue, but I don't know that there's time to revamp that whole character. So I I felt like they were probably hamstrung a little bit. Okay. But I think it's odd that TJ Miller is I guess still working. He's also going to be in Deadpool 2 coming up. You know, and this is not only in the Me Too moment and uh, movement and with everything going on, but just think back last summer when that director of Birth of a Nation. Right. Then there's he, a Penn State he was thing. Acu- yeah. yeah. He was accused of sexual assault from like 20 years before or 15 years before. And he he is like done. He's persona non grata. Yeah. I mean, it's it. Uh, Nate Parker was his name. That's right. Final question. The Shining sequence was my favorite part of the film. But why no Bear Man Cob Gobbler? What? Don't you remember that weird that weird sequence at the very? It's in the last fifteen minutes of The Shining, when Wendy's running through the hotel, not understanding what's going on, and she she looks into a room, and there's clearly like a a man dressed as either a bear or a walrus or something going down on a dude on the bed. Like, oh, I do not remember that. Oh, it, it it's just this complete head scratcher like what is she seeing what what are we all seeing is that real but yeah there there's a scene of a, a man clearly dressed up as an animal performing fellatio on a what you have to expect as a ghost hotel guest there yeah mm. no yeah. i don't remember that sequence because most of the times i've seen the shining which is probably two or three dozen times in my life it's on i TV. watched the, I watched Shelley Duvall's scenes through my fingers because she's so scary looking. (laughs) 
that if she's on screen, I probably miss most of it. Well, she, I, I she's can, garish. I, I can understand that. Yeah. Like you just see her and you're like, oh, good God. And it's like, it doesn't, that's just in the scenes where she's trying to be a normal mom and wife. It's just terrifying right, right. to look at. So I don't see a lot of what she's And you know, I've, I've never thought of Jack Nicholson as what you would describe look wise as a ladies man, but apparently in Hollywood he has been. So I guess the casting of her as his wife and that was just, just a real ballsy move by Stanley Kubrick. It's like he was mad at Nicholson and was like, Oh yeah, <laughs> well here's who's going to play your wife. It's like, really? Right. And I'm sorry, Shelly Duvall and all her devoted fans. We just probably we lost, just a, lost lot a lot of them. Yeah. yeah well, that's five Shelley. questions. Yeah, yeah, well, thank you, listeners. That's great. Sorry, Shelly. <laughs> but your final thoughts on Ready Player One. Yeah, I've, I've sort of forgotten it, and I I know I will never revisit it. It kind of... Your description of the source material kind of makes me want to actually read the book and, and maybe get something out of this, because movie-wise, unfortunately, I, I just didn't. I, some... Some interesting scenes. I thought that the acting in it was fine. If you take Mark Rylance out of that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's it. How about you? Yeah. Anything um, else to Same add? boat. Okay. No, same boat. Same boat. Uh, coming up next, though, we are going back to one of our Best Picture winners from the Best Picture Choosing Machine. Back to 1991 or two uh, with Silence of the Lambs starring Jodie Foster and Scott Glenn. Thanks for listening to the Spoiler Alert Podcast. Please visit us online at movieoutsiders.com, where you can see what films we'll be discussing next, comment on our recent episodes, suggest movies to review or topics to discuss, or submit questions for the five questions segment of the podcast. Stop by and visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash movieoutsiders, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at movieoutsiders. If you're a fan of the show, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast subscription service you use. We'll be back again next week with another episode, but until then, enjoy the movies.